Okay, in case you missed it, we, uh, for the next couple of months, we will be uh, journeying through the book of Philippians, and we've, we're calling the series Encouraged, and you'll notice we put a little hyphen uh, between the prefix N and the word courage, uh, because we believe this book will impart courage to us, it'll impart joy to us, it'll impart, impart uh, strength to us through the gospel. It is a radically gospel-centered book. In fact, the whole Bible is the gospel, but in particular, Philippians is just a wonderfully gospel-centered uh, book. Two weeks ago, we saw how this gospel-centered church in Philippi uh, brought so much joy and so much encouragement to Paul, especially uh, who was in prison, who was under house arrest in Rome for preaching the gospel. Now he kind of shifts gears and he begins to encourage them by letting them know how he prays for them. He pray, his prayer centers on their love, uh, particularly on their love for one another. And so I'm very excited about this because I want to know how should we love one another? What should our love look like? I mean, we, we serve and, and we love the God of love, and so therefore we must love. There must be evidence of that in the way we love. But, I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian to love, right? I mean, it's, it's not like you suddenly become a Christian and you suddenly realize, oh, okay, this is how you love. You know, you have to make your wife coffee early in the morning and play ball with the kids and take out the trash or whatever it might be. No, no. I mean, Janine and I, we, we have plenty of friends who don't know Jesus, <clears throat> and they have wonderful marriages. They have great relationships with their kids, and, and they there's a lot of love in their households. So what is the deal? What does or what should make Christian love different? So let's read Paul's prayer for the Philippians, and in doing so, we will see the big difference. So it's chapter one from verse nine, just um, three verses this morning. He says this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Look at this. To the glory and praise of God. You see that last part? That's the ultimate purpose for how we love and why we love. It is to bring praise and glory to our heavenly Father. And I was thinking, well, that's, that's an interesting thought. We are to love someone or we are to love each other as the church where a third party gets the praise, where a third party gets the glory. Or another way of putting it, we could say, our love for each other is to be governed by the degree of glory it brings to another, which then puts that person square in the middle of our love and how we love. Our love is to be a God-centered love so that he gets the glory and we experience the effects of that. Whatever our love is centered upon influences what that love looks like or the characteristics that it takes on. I mean, think about it. If, if our love is centered on ourselves, then it produces characteristics of selfishness. If it's centered on our emotions, then it will take on the characteristic of whatever mood we might be in in that moment. Uh, or if it's centered on the culture, then it, it'll take on the characteristics of the culture or the latest fad in the culture, and the culture of the day gets all the glory. The, the culture of the day gets made much of. That's the difference right there. 
what our love is centered on and therefore exalting determines what it looks like and determines what it does. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at three characteristics of this God-centered, God-glorifying love so that it remains at the center of our hearts and our love. So here we go, three things we're gonna look at. The nature of God-glorifying love, then secondly, the effect of God-glorifying love, and then lastly, the ultimate goal of God-glorifying love. Now don't panic, the first point is a bit longer than the other two, so if you're thinking, wow, he hasn't even got to point two yet, don't worry, we're okay. Coffee will still be hot. Number one, here we go. The nature of God-glorifying love. And so by nature, I mean, what does this love consist of? What, what is it about this makeup that makes much of God, that makes much of this love, uh, makes much of God as opposed to another way of, of loving? I mean, surely love is love, right? No, as we mentioned earlier, what the love is centered on determines who or what is made much of or glorified. So let's have a look at this makeup of this love. Have a look at verse nine again. Paul says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Stop there for a second. The first thing I want us to see about the nature of God glorifying love is that it needs to be divinely enabled. Divinely enabled. If God is gonna be glorified through it and by it, then God can't leave it up to ourselves to, to kind of muster uh, it up in our own strength and ability. He, he can't take that risk. This is his glory that we're talking about. So he can't leave it up to us to try and do it in our own strength. Secondly, he knows that there's so much in this world that is competing for the focus and the affections of our hearts and minds. So many things in this world want to be glorified. So many things in this world want to be made much of by our love or what we love. And so using prayer as the means, he will divinely enable us to have a God-glorifying love. And what interested me most was that of all the things Paul could have prayed for, he prays for their love. I was thinking, you know, why not their protection? Right? They're, they're Christians in a Roman colony where they're supposed to worship Caesar as Lord. They're supposed to worship all of the other Roman deities because Christianity wasn't at that stage recognized as an official religion. Why not pray for their provision? Why not pray for some of the specific needs that Epaphroditus would have surely informed him of? Remember, Epaphroditus traveled 4,608 miles all the way from Philippi across the Adriatic Sea, all the way into Italy to Rome to go and minister to Paul's needs and inform him of how the church is doing. So why, out of all of those things, why does he pray for their love? Because Christian love is our greatest virtue. If you think Christianity, we should think love. Remember Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, he says, I gain nothing. What a remarkable statement. 
Because again, if you think Christian, you can think, oh yeah, they're wonderful, they're so helpful, they do so much for the community, they build up the community. I mean, and he's saying you can even be blessed with the most amazing spiritual gifts and faith that can do the most miraculous things and you can be incredibly self-sacrificial. But if none of what we do, he says, is done out of love, it's useless. It means nothing. It gains nothing. There's no gain to it. Love must be the fundamental virtue behind everything that we do. Jesus said in John 13, 35, that the world would know that we are his disciples. The world will know that we belong to him. How? By the way we love one another. So our love and the way we love sets us apart from the world. It demonstrates who we belong to or who we are glorifying, making much of. It, is our, it should be our quintessential virtue. And therefore, because of that, we need divine enablement. God needs to step in and help us. And he's praying then that our love may abound more and more. In the original Greek in which this was written, uh, it, it kind of gives the picture of, of buds um, opening more and more until they're fully in bloom. So if you kind of picture these rolling green hills that are becoming more and more colorful as these wild flowers are, are, are abounding, as these wild flowers are opening up more and more. But now just before you get carried away with that image and imagine yourself skipping through the fields singing all we need is love like a hippie, Paul is going to tell us two very important aspects of this love that we are to have. Look at what he says again. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with what? Hipster love? With knowledge and all discernment. Stop there. It's not a hippie love. It's not like, hey, if it feels right, it must be right, it must be love. If our love is going to be God-centered, if our love is going to glorify God, it has to be abounding, he says, in knowledge and all discernment. This prayer flies in the face of worldly love and even love that we might have even experienced in the church. It's not an emotional-driven love. It's not based on emotions. And that that can sound heartless, but really it isn't. I mean, how many of you have experienced something like this? My my heartstrings can get pulled very, very quickly. Uh, And and there's, uh, this happened a lot, particularly in my younger years as a younger Christian. You know, I'd hear all of these sad stories. Someone comes up to me and says, Jason, this is what's happened in my life. And and because this person did this to me, now this is where I am in in life or whatever it might be, or or their health, they're really going through a tough time in their health and they, they can't afford to go see a doctor. And so out of my compassion, I I give them money or I organize this for them or organize that for them, only to find out a couple of weeks later that I was completely deceived, completely manipulated. And then a heart that was full of the feeling of compassion, that was driven by compassion, now swings all the way over to the feeling of anger. And this cold-heartedness begins to set in. And now that cold-heartedness negatively affects those who genuinely do need help, who genuinely do need love. Come on, Jason, I need this. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm not the only one. Many people get so offended that they even leave the church. 
They, they leave church life all together because the emotions drive them to the conclusion that that's true of all churches. That's true of all Christians. So our love cannot be grounded and founded, cannot be filled and abounding in emotions. Let me open up one more can. There's always a God who is going to be glorified in how and who we love. Let me give you two examples. It can be the God of self-righteousness. You know, I, I give this person money or I do this for this, for this person because it builds up my feeling of superiority. I feel superior when I'm doing something good for someone or I feel superior uh, when I do something for someone because it fuels my savior mentality. Or secondly, I love because it will glorify the God of value. I only feel valued when I do something of value for someone else. So to feel like that I have any worth in a church faith family, to feel like I have any worth in the world means I'm constantly giving of myself. I'm constantly giving affection. And the consequences of that can be devastating. And the list of false gods and idols can go on and on. No matter which idol it is, whether it's the, the God of, of self-righteousness or the God of, of value or worth or, or comfort or control, whatever it is, it, it cannot deliver. It will never deliver. It can never deliver on its promises. In fact, the only thing they can deliver on is pain, hurt, and frustration. So Paul's prayer is that the one and only true God may give us a love that is abounding with two very distinct attributes, that of knowledge and all discernment. See what he's saying? He says that knowledge and discernment must be the grounds, must be the center of our love for one another. Now, what could that possibly mean? Now, I need to know if you are okay at this point because I'm about to go a little bit nerdy on us, um, a little bit technical on us, um, but it's because I'm so desperate to, to love in a way that glorifies God and is the best for my family, is the best for you, and is the best for this world. Okay, so, so please hear my heart. I, I don't want to be annoyingly nerdy. I, I don't just simply want to tell you what these words mean. I want us to see it for ourselves in God's word because that's where the authority is. Okay, so, but I am gonna tell you this part. The word knowledge in the original Greek is the word epigenosis, which means a precise and correct knowledge. He's saying our love is to abound in a precise and correct knowledge. Just think, okay, well, that's great, but Specific knowledge of what? And then I discovered that Paul uses the same word, this epigenosis, in his two other prayers for the two other churches, uh, that of Colossians and Ephesians, the, the two other prison epistles. Look at this in Ephesians 1.17. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the epigenosis, the knowledge of him. He's saying that we would have precise and correct knowledge of God himself. And that out of that knowledge, he goes on in that context uh, to say that we would know the, then the hope of our calling, that we would uh, know God's inheritance in us, and that we would know and experience God's power that works toward us. 
Then his prayer for the Colossians goes like this. He says, verse nine, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled. It's a good word. Filled to the top, filled with what? The knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we would have a correct and precise knowledge of God's will. Now you put that all together. Paul is praying for the Philippians, he's praying for us that our love would abound more and more in correct and precise knowledge of God himself and his will, what he wants us to do, what he wants for our lives. Now when you think about it that way, imagine how that will affect, imagine how that will influence the way we love. The way you love your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your colleagues, your family members. I mean, how many of us thought that knowledge would in, inhibit or, or, or dampen our love for one another? Like, oh, Jason wants us to have like nerdy theological love for each other. No, no, this is gonna cause our love, cause us to love in an unparalleled way. But Paul's not done. Not only are we to love with this knowledge, but also with all discernment, he says. Now, I read this prayer in so many different translations to kind of get an idea of what that meant. And so many translations had different translations of this word. Some said depth of insight. Others said judgment, while others used the word understanding. In other words, that we are, we are to be enabled to, to sum up a situation. That we would have insight to a situation and therefore love appropriately. Others said that we would be enabled to make a moral decision in a particular moment. But now we need, to, we need to be careful in how we understand or how we apply this to our lives. Because our love is to be filled with discernment, it doesn't mean that we can then decide, well, who, you know, who to love and who not to love, or, or when to love and when, and when not to love. Because Paul's prayer is that our love should be ever-increasing, that it should be ever-abounding. So the question is rather, well, how am I to love in this situation to the glory of God? How can I make this person feel so special to the glory of God? Do you see that? It's not how do I make this person feel so special for their sake or to fuel my idol. No, for God's sake. And so when we put it that way, we can see why we need the knowledge of God, why, why we need to know his will and therefore discernment. So how do we get this knowledge? How do we get this discernment? Like we said in the beginning, it's divinely enabled. Paul is not just simply informing the Philippians of how he's praying for them. He himself is divinely inspired to write down God's word. Therefore, this prayer is God's will, not just for the Philippians, it's God's will for us. And if it's his will, he will answer his prayer. God answers prayers according to his will. 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, towards God. What is that? That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He will answer us. So secondly, our knowledge of God and his will is found in his word. 
the more we, we read this word of his, the more we read this will of, of his, this revealed will of his, we will grow in our understanding of who God is, and the more we do that, the more we will grow in an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe, and that itself will change and transform us. And the more you grow in a vertical relationship with God, the more that will radically change and alter our horizontal relationships with each other. But here's the deal. We can never separate the Holy Spirit from the Bible. When we pray, our prayers are to be infused with the word because that's God's revealed will for us. And when we read the word, we should do so in absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit. The result will be an ever-increasing, ever-abounding love filled with knowledge and discernment. Now, let's look at the effect of this love. Or we can say, what purpose will this type of love serve other than bringing God glory? So number two, the effect of God-glorifying love. So we're looking at this now uh, from a horizontal perspective, right? So Paul says, verse nine, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, here we go, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. The word approve means to, to put to the test for, uh, for the purpose of seeing if it can in fact be approved. It was used uh, of testing coins back in the first century. These you know, coins would be tested to see if they could be approved as being genuine. And so Jesus, in fact, used the same word when he rebuked the Pharisees in, in Luke 12, verse 56. He said, you hypocrites. He says, you know how to analyze. That's the same word there. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? He's saying you, you have great knowledge of the weather, and so you can ascertain what the weather is gonna be like the next day. In the context of that passage, he says, you see a cloud rising in the west, and you know showers are coming. He says, you, you know, when the south wind blows, you know it's gonna be scorching hot. So he says, out of your knowledge, you can discern the weather, but he's saying because of your lack of spiritual knowledge, you cannot discern the arrival of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus. Therefore, they couldn't approve of him as the son of God. They couldn't approve of him as the Messiah. And so Paul is praying that we would have the capability to test and approve the things that are excellent. Again, that word literally means to differ, meaning that we would have the ability to see the difference between things, that we would be able to tell the difference between what is good and what is even better. What is the even better way to love in this situation or that situation? What is the even better way to love this person or that person? And one of the reasons Paul is saying this is because there appear to be some relationship issues within the church. Although Paul was supremely blessed by the Philippian church and, and loved them dearly and was encouraged by them and he writes this encouraging letter to them, there is no such thing as a perfect church. Sorry to burst your bubble. Certainly no such thing as a perfect church this side of heaven. And so there seem to be some interpersonal relationship issues within the, the Philippian church. We'll get to this a bit later in chapter four, verse two, he says this, I entreat you, Adia, and I entreat Syntyche or Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
And so these are two ladies within the church who are disagreeing over something. We're not told what, but obviously it was big enough that it was disturbing the whole church. And so Paul even mentions it in his letter, which then would be read out to the entire congregation when they received it. Rolf Martin, who wrote an excellent commentary on Philippians, he explains it like this. He says, the fulfillment of the apostles' prayer will be that his friends will have the ability to discern and then to practice in their Christian living the really important issues in their corporate life as a believing Christian community. To discern what is the most excellent way to love in this situation. He gives us some examples. He says, such things would certainly include a a closer harmony and the cultivation of a brotherly spirit replacing bickering and dissension. That is the effect that God-glorifying love should have on us. It should help us discern those excellent things that are gonna lead to greater unity and reduce or even stamp out any form of quarreling or gossiping or backbiting or, or conflict. So can you see why this is further evidence that God centered, God-glorifying love cannot be centered on our emotions, but rather on the knowledge of God and his word. When there is any form of offense, and there will be, as long as we're stuck in these bodies, this side of heaven, we will be fighting off sin. And so whenever there is a form of offense, We cannot let our offended emotions dictate how to handle the situation. If we allow our emotions to dictate our love, then we will always gravitate towards the things that we like, the things that make us feel comfortable, and we'll stay away from the things that are different or take us out of our comfort zone. It is a selfish love. It is a self-centered love as opposed to a God-centered love. John MacArthur explains it like this. He says, people, sorry, he says, most people live off their moods. They don't control themselves, their selves control them. They don't think at all. They can't pursue unhindered and undistracted what is excellent because they can't think and control their thought patterns to the degree that they can assess what is excellent. He says, they react. It's tragic, but most people live in reaction to everything around them, like a bouncing ball, bouncing off off every wall they hit in whatever direction they have the freedom to go. So I hear what he's saying, but it's difficult, right? I mean, someone says something harsh to you or does something bad to you. you. You feel these emotions rising up within you. And you want to react, you want to respond with those emotions. And again, that's why Paul is saying, no, no, we need divine enablement through prayer and time in God's word. And so yes, we are to pray, but we are to be real with God. We can be real with God in our prayers. I don't think Paul is telling us to be emotionless beings. God created, created us with emotions. That was, that's what makes Life so exciting, that's what makes love so exciting. He's not saying that. He's saying we can then take those emotions and we can be real with God in our prayers. I mean, just read the book of Psalms. Those guys were seriously real with God and how they were feeling. 
And so we can go, Lord, I feel so angry toward him. I can't believe he said that to me. Or I feel so angry towards her, I can't believe she did that. And all I wanna do, Lord, all I wanna do is just go give him a piece of my mind. All I wanna do, Lord, is just, I never wanna see that person again. I just wanna cut them out of my life. But, Lord, because my love is filled with your knowledge, or is being filled with your knowledge of you and your will, I can see that that's not the right way. And then you pray, help me find the right way according to your will. And then help me apply it. Or I can see according to your will, I can see that I am to forgive. I can see that it's written here. Because I've been forgiven by you, I should forgive. But I'm so angry. I'm so hurt, but I want my love to be, I want my love to make much of you. I want you to be glorified. So can you help me? Can you divinely enable me to go and do that, to go and forgive or to go and ask for forgiveness? Here's why that's so important. Look at the last point. The ultimate goal of God glorifying love. In other words, if we love with this God-centered love, what will it result in for us? What will happen to us? Look from verse 10. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so, he says, and so, in other words, if you can do the excellent thing, and if you cannot allow your emotions to be enslaved by sin, he says this, you will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That should be our goal as Christians that we should lead lives of integrity. And Paul says, hey, this can happen. This can happen with God-glorifying love. As you can probably tell by now, I love reading up on the, um, the ancient Greek words and their origins. And that word pure has a very interesting picture around it. Uh, in its Greek origin, it means to, to judge by sunlight. Uh, and in its Latin derivative, it means to, it means to be without wax. It comes from the same scenario, to, to judge by sunlight and to be without wax. So back in the first century, um, potters would make clay pots and plates and whatever, and they would then go and sell them in the marketplace. And so after they had skillfully molded a clay pot, they would then put it into the oven to, to, to get all uh, hard, to harden up, and then they would take it out and they would polish it and they would paint it, and then they could go and sell it in the marketplace. But sometimes during the, the baking process, the pot would would crack, crack quite badly, rendering it, it useless. And instead of throwing it away, some would sneakily put a hard wax, they'd rub a hard wax into the pot. And then they would polish it up and, and then go and sell it in the marketplace. And a naive and unsuspecting buyer would, would purchase it. And then upon its first use in cooking, the wax would melt, the cracks would widen, and the, the pot would break. But then a wise buyer, a wise buyer would hold the pot up in the marketplace. He'd hold the pot up to the sunlight and he'd turn it around to see if the sunlight would catch that waxy layer and then not buy it. And so Paul is praying that our love and he's praying that our lives would be without cracks and wax. 
that we wouldn't be hypocrites in how we love each other, that our words of encouragement to each other wouldn't be coming from a heart that is full of insincerity or malice, that our love would be genuine and not simply have the appearance of genuine love, that we would genuinely be loving in the most excellent way, that we would be genuinely discerning the most excellent way to love in a particular situation, which then leads to the second word, that of blamelessness. It means to, to not cause others to stumble, like a Christian boyfriend who says he loves his girlfriend with God-glorifying love, yet he's causing her to stumble in the area of sexuality or sexual. Or a Christian businessman or Christian businesswoman who, who claims to love their clients with God-glorifying love, but he's cheating them out of money or finances. A husband not honest with his wife or a wife not honest with her husband is or will cause a stumbling in that marriage. But now follow the logic of Paul's prayer. He's saying that if our love is abounding in knowledge and discernment, it will help us do the excellent thing and so result in us living pure without wax and cracks and not cause anybody to stumble until the return of Jesus. That we, if we do this, if we have abounding love like this, God glorifying love, it will cause us to be pure and blameless until Jesus comes back. Anyone feel daunted by that? We should. We should feel terrified by that. I mean, that, that, that's impossible. There's only one person who can truly consistently love with God glorifying love. God honoring, God exalting love, and that's Jesus who just so happened to be God himself. But now remember, this whole book is about the gospel. This whole book is about how the gospel imparts courage to us, how it imparts strength to us, how it imparts joy to us. And remember, the gospel is a person. Through Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for us, we can love like he loves and glorify God. Look at verses 10 and 11 together. Look at this, he says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now here comes the gospel secret that empowers our love. Verse 11 says, filled with the fruit of righteousness or the New American Standard says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's what we need, sunrise. We want to, we want to love righteously, right? We, we want to love in a righteous way. Well, where does this come from? He says, that comes through Jesus Christ. And what will that guarantee? What will that ensure? He says, to the glory and praise of God. That little phrase in verse 11 is the key to being enabled to love with God glorifying love. We need to be filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus. Not our own righteousness, his righteousness. Jesus himself said it like this, John 15 verse four. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And just in case we're confused, well, who's the vine and who's the branches? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, look at this, he it is, that bears much fruit. And now comes this 
ground clause. He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a verse to memorize, sunrise. We need to develop a theology of I can't do it. It's the opposite of the Nike slogan, right? Countercultural. I can't do it. Apart from being connected to Jesus through faith, we cannot live this Christian life. We cannot produce the Christian fruit to the glory of God, including the fruit of righteousness. And that fruit of righteousness is the fertile ground by which a God-glorifying love can spring forth from us. That's the secret right there. I hope I haven't been too technical or boring because I honestly believe this prayer of Paul's will revolutionize the way we love, the way we love one another. In short, a God-centered and God-glorifying love will have God-glorifying effects on our lives and our relationships, which doesn't mean things will always be easy. As you are abounding in this love, as you're searching uh, his revealed will, you're searching for knowledge and discernment, it might result in us causing us to come alongside a, a brother or a sister and go, hey, if you keep going down this path, you're gonna stumble. You're gonna cause your marriage to stumble. It might mean calling each other out on our sin. It might mean getting out of our comfort zone to go make a visitor feel welcome or gonna go say hello to someone you, you normally wouldn't greet or speak to. It may mean giving up some of your time to sacrificially help someone, giving up that Saturday afternoon nap to go and help someone in need. It may mean saying no to a social engagement, to spend more time with your family or to go and spend time with a friend who is really in need of encouragement. It may mean picking up the phone to say sorry, to ask for forgiveness, to extend forgiveness. So here's what I wanna do as we finish off. Here's your homework. Would you commit to praying this prayer this week? And before you pray it, would you think of someone? Would you think of a particular situation where God-glorifying love, God-centered love would radically transform that person, radically transform the relationship that you have with them, radically transform whatever it might be, and then pray it, pray it over that person. Pray it over that situation. In fact, let's do it. There's nothing like the present to apply God's word. As Matt and his team come up and they get ready, would you bow your heads right now? And would you take this moment right now to be with your heavenly father? Would you ask him to bring someone to mind or bring a particular situation to mind where God's love, this God-glorifying love would radically transform that situation. Yeah.